Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, and I pray the Lord God will bless today's broadcast. May it be heard loud and clear around the world, thanks to the internet and the shortwave. Acts 14, look at verse 1, please. And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews. And so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also the Greeks, believed. You get saved by believing, and you are condemned for not believing. And here, Paul and Barnabas, from verse 50, in the previous chapter, have arrived in Iconium, and they've gone into a synagogue, which will be a typical Sabbath, which is Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, to witness to the Jews. And sometimes if you speak to SDA people, Seventh-day Adventists, for those I don't know, or certain Baptist groups, or certain Pentecostal or Charismatic groups which keep the Jewish Sabbath. They like to quote this chapter, along with the last one from chapter 13, to suggest that the early church met to break bread. But that's not what we're reading here this morning. It says they went to a synagogue of the Jews and spoke to them, a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks believed. You've got a typical synagogue filled with unsaved Jews and unsaved proselytes. And of course, Paul and Barnabas are two saved Jewish apostles that are going to witness to their own people. This is common sense, of course, and yet sometimes I have to go through it again and again and again. Not for those of you that are born again, not for those of you which understand that the Lord's Day is a Sunday, not a Saturday, but for those that are still technically under the old covenant. But it says they believed, which is how you got saved, which is how I got saved. The just shall live by faith. As we say, it's a done deal. Look at verse 2, please. But the unbelieving Jews stood up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. They were jealous of the success of Paul and Barnabas, and nothing much has changed under the sun if you are a street evangelist. If you are doing anything for the Lord, if you are making any great difference for the Lord, the chances are sooner or later those in organized religion are going to come up against you. They're going to speak evil against you. They're going to seek to pull you down. So it's not overly surprising that you've got unbelieving Jews stirring up the minds of the Gentiles to make them think evil thoughts against the brethren. I can appreciate to some extent how the Jews would have felt They've been following the Lord for as long as they could care to remember. They've been keeping the oracles of the Lord. They've been keeping the law of Moses as well as they possibly could do. Of course, we know that nobody really could keep the law. The Lord said there's nobody good in the earth. No, not one, but God. In fact, in the next chapter from Acts 15, the apostles make it very clear that they couldn't keep the law of Moses. And at the same time, you've got this group of saved Jews that are preaching the risen Messiah and the Jews are not receiving it, but the Gentiles are. It's a strange dilemma and they must have thought to themselves, what is going on here? Why are the Gentiles following Jehovah? Why are the Gentiles reading the Old Testament, the Jewish Tanakh? Fast forward 2,000 years, I'm sure there are Jews all over the world today which must wonder why there are ministries such as ours that read the Old and the New Testament each and every day, that love Israel, that love the Jews. Whereas most Jews are secular or agnostic. So I can understand the frustration, the uh, bewilderment from Jewry in reference to Paul and Barnabas witnessing to Gentiles referred to as Greeks in verse 1 and 
Gentiles in verse 2. And yet the Lord always made it very clear that he wanted Jews and Gentiles to be saved. Nobody owns the rights to the Lord. No church has the exclusivity or the sole claim of authorship of the Lord. No ministry, no pastor, no preacher, nobody at all can say that they own the Lord or they speak solely for him. If you're born again, if you've passed from death unto life, you speak for him. He is your father. In fact, you can call him daddy. The word in Aramaic from Romans chapter 8, Abba Father means daddy. If you were there back in the gospel period when the Lord was speaking to the apostles in Matthew and Luke, I think it is, he gave them the, the Lord's Prayer, which should be called the Disciples' Prayer. And he said, when you pray, say our Father. And if he spoke in Aramaic, which most scholars think he probably did, he would have said to the apostles, when you pray, say our Father or our Daddy who art in heaven. Now that sounds somewhat strange. It's strange to me, a sinner, saved for 14 years to refer to Almighty God as Daddy. But that's what was occurring. And that really must have sh shaken the Jews to have such intimacy with their creator. But we can call him Daddy if we're saved. And we can call Jesus Christ our older brother. No other faith system anywhere in the world comes anywhere near it. Look at verse 3, please. Long time therefore abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Unique times resulted in unique Gifts, supernatural occurrences happening right before your very eyes. And yet, at the same time, the Lord made it very clear that this evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and no sign shall be given unto it. The Jews require a sign. First Corinthians chapter 1, the Jews are entitled to a sign. In fact, Israel started with a sign back in Genesis, excuse me, back in Exodus chapter 3. So they are entitled to signs and wonders, whereas we, the Gentiles, are not. But the greatest gift that the Lord has ever given anybody, as far as I am concerned, post the completion of the New Testament, is regeneration. The new birth. And it says here how they spake boldly in the Lord. I like that term, in the Lord. You are in the Lord. You are in Christ, and Christ is in you. They spoke boldly. They preached boldly in the Lord which gave testimony, confirmed what they were doing, unto the word of his grace, and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. And I believe, just for the record, that the apostles and some of their associates, like Stephen and Philip, had the Jewish apostolic sign gifts. But as we read throughout Acts of the Apostles, and as we read the epistles, we can see that the two are covering two different periods of time. For example, Acts of the Apostles covers a 30-year period where the Apostles are doing miracles, left, right, and center, day and night, whereas the Epistles are written later during the period of the New Testament church. In fact, Paul would mention a, a chap called Trophimus who was sick and wasn't able to be healed. Timothy had a stomach ulcer and couldn't heal himself. Paul couldn't heal him. So you got Paul, Timothy, and Trophimus, three saved Men in the first century church, pre-70 AD. In fact, Paul was almost blind before he died. And nobody went to lay hands on Paul to heal him. Paul couldn't heal Timothy, who he would refer to in chapter 16 as his son. In a spiritual sense, you understand, not in a physical sense. And nobody was able to heal Trophimus either. So you see the gifts are starting to recede. And yet here we are still 
very much witnessing miraculous gifts. We're not even halfway through, really, this point of Acts of the Apostles. And yes, I know we are in chapter 14, which technically puts us at the halfway mark. But here, as far as the sign gifts are concerned, we're not even halfway through their extinction. Look at verse 4, please. But the multitude of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles. You are either for the Lord Jesus Christ, or you are against him. There's no middle ground. So when you come across people who say, well, I'm not sure if I'm saved or not, or I'm sure he was a good man, this man who you refer to as Jesus, but I'm not sure I'm going to trust him to save me. You're either for him or against him. But division, confusion, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I think it is, is not of God. It's of the devil. Five. And when there was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers, to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it, and fled unto Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lieth round about, and there they preached the gospel. There's no need to be suicidal. If you do a lot of street work, as we do this ministry, if you speak to a lot of people, as we do this ministry, you will come across hostile people, and sometimes they will threaten to assault you. And we've had all sorts of uh, occurrences over the years. We've had people spit at us, push us, uh, mock us, try to intimidate us, try to preach over us, try to get us to pack up and run away. And you have to stand your ground when you do street work. And yet it does say here that an assault was made both of the Gentiles, verse 5, and also of the Jews with their rulers. You've got an unholy alliance here. You've got a jury, which should have known better, joining forces with Gentiles, possibly proselytes to Judaism, or possibly in reference to just local individuals from Iconium going into Derby, Lyconia, Lystria, or Lystria from verse 6, coming together to attack Paul and Barnabas. This goes back to what I said at the beginning of this message, that organized religion will plot to kill you. They will plot to attack you. They will plot to ridicule you. And here, word has got back to the apostles, and they have fled. The Lord made it very clear, I think it's in Matthew 10, and also Luke 10, that if you are rejected in one city, dust off your shoes and go to another city. There's a picture of contempt to dust your shoes down or to uh, dust the sand from under your feet. That's very much a Middle Eastern um, description of contempt. Don't be suicidal. There's more fish in the sea. And yet it is a fine line, as I say, when it comes to standing your ground. We've had people come up to us that have wanted us to vacate our spot and play their instruments. We've had Maoists, hard left-wing atheists wanting to preach over us, wanting to force us to pack up and depart. And we've stood our ground for many a year now, but as I say, if you want to become a martyr, okay, fine, stand your ground and they'll cut your throat. I was in Manchester some years ago with a brother, and he was preaching, and I was giving out tracts just a few yards from him, and this Muslim came over towards him and started to scream at him, and he was swearing at him, he was cursing him, he was insulting the queen for some reason, I don't know why. And it went on for about 15 minutes. And he came very close to this brother 
almost nose to nose, and I was standing right next to him, and I was thinking to myself, which way is this going to go? And he was threatening to kill this brother for street preaching, and eventually there were three of us and just one of him. Now, we weren't there to fight. We weren't there to get into a physical altercation, but I do believe that you can defend yourself. I think if somebody is going to physically assault you, you can defend yourself, but at the same time, don't forget Matthew chapter 5, if somebody strikes you on one side of the, of the face, turn the other cheek. So if you are out and about for the Lord, doing frontline work, and somebody assaults you, it's happened to us, or verbally assaults you, it's happened to us, or has tried to intimidate you, it's happened to us, you have to turn the other cheek. And yet, you don't have to keep turning the other cheek. You're not a doormat. And that's a fine line, but if you look at Paul the Apostle, when he's been in, being interrogated by the Sanhedrin later on in the book of Acts, he gets physically assaulted, and he snaps back at the man who's just physically assaulted him, and he calls him uh, a whited sepulchre, a whited wall, or something along, along those lines. And they say to Paul, you dare speak against the high priest? But that's Paul's old nature, see. Like Peter, his old nature, get that sword, cut that man's ear off. John the Baptist's old nature, are you the one that we should be looking for? Or is there somebody else that's going to come after you? Why haven't you overthrown the Romans? Why are you allowing these people to speak to you with contempt? You see, that's the old nature in John. That was the old nature in Peter. I'm going to cut that man's head off. He misses the head and goes for the ear. And the Lord puts the ear back on his head. And with Paul, that was the old nature. And he apologizes to the high priest. But when the Lord Jesus Christ is in the presence of Pilate and Herod, they are mocking him. He doesn't want rise to it. Why? Because he was sinless. So I just say this very finally, and I get back to the scripture that, yes, if you're on the streets and you come up against physical, uh, physical assault or a verbal assault, you have to take it. Like this brother did some years ago with this very irate Muslim. But if it becomes a sustained attack, you can defend yourself. And I would use reasonable force if I had to, to protect myself. But if somebody spits at me, and they have done, if somebody pushes into me, and they have done, if somebody gives me a tongue lashing, and they have done, I'll take it. But I won't keep taking it, because I think we can defend ourselves. In fact, you were told in First Timothy chapter 5 that if you don't provide for your own household, you are worse than an infidel. So you've got to weigh up these scriptures very carefully. But here, this early church are under attack and I'll just say that this brother that's experienced this ferocious attack from this Muslim on the streets of Manchester um, experienced it a week or two later. I wasn't with him. And what happened was he went into a local shop and the shop had to call for security to come to his aid. He did the right thing. He removed himself from the scene where things were getting rather hairy, much like Paul and Barnabas are doing here in verses 4, 5, 6 and 7. They put themselves out of harm's way. Sometimes just use a little common sense, and yet sometimes your old nature will get in the way and you want to stand your ground. It's a fine line, I know, but uh, as I say, we've experienced both sides of the coin, and we've stood our ground and always felt better for it, but I think if our lives were in peril, we'd probably follow verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, like this brother did in Manchester some years ago. But look at verse 8, please. And there sat a certain man at Lystria, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, 
who steadfastly beholding him, and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. Keep this in mind, please. What you can't get from this scripture is what the Dominion theology crowd hold to, which is simply this, that if you name something and claim something, providing you have faith, you will receive it. That's not what is happening here. Paul and Barnabas have just escaped near death. They've been very much up against it. They've had to flee from this mob of Jews and Gentiles out for their blood. And yet, out of all this madness, this mist of darkness, this mist of confusion, this satanic assault against Paul and Barnabas, they come across a man who is impotent in his feet, crippled from his mother's womb. And please note that organized religion couldn't heal him. When the Pope came to England back in the early 1980s, they brought thousands on stretchers and wheelchairs to visit him, to be healed by him. They came sick and they left sick. Some years later, another Pope arrived in 2010. The same thing happened again. They brought thousands to visit him on, uh, on stretchers, in wheelchairs. They arrived sick and they left sick. Isn't that interesting? He claims to be the Pope of Rome. He claims to be a successor to Peter who could heal. And yet when sick people arrive in their thousands with the world's media filming this, what a great opportunity to glorify the Lord. He couldn't heal anyone. They arrived sick and they left sick. And here this man, crippled from his mother's womb, wasn't able to be healed from the synagogue of Jews, verse 1, or the Gentiles, verse 2. And yet he has faith. He is wanting to be healed. And that also goes back to that scripture where it says the Lord was in Capernaum and because of such unbelief he wasn't able to heal many people. Meaning they wouldn't come to be healed. Not that he wasn't able to in the sense of having the power or not having the power to do so. Of course he had the power to do so. But unless you come forward to be healed you won't be healed. Unless you come forward to be saved from your sin you won't be saved. And here this man had faith to be healed and Paul perceives that. Paul is aware of that and he says with a loud voice being filled with the Holy Spirit no doubt stand upright on thy feet and he leaped and walked total one-off act of healing no comeback tomorrow and let's do it again no comeback next week and let's do it again he believed and he was healed whether he got saved we're not told there are scores of people back in the gospels that healed of physical ailments, set free from unclean spirits. I mean thousands of people. In fact, some scholars have even suggested that during the Lord's time on the earth, sickness was almost banished from Israel. And yet, how many of those people went on to be saved? We're not told. We know that thousands were healed, scores were saved, and yet, by Acts chapter 1, how many are in the upper room? Around 120 souls. Now, I don't believe they all fell away. I don't believe in conditional security. But it makes you wonder how on one hand you've got thousands being healed, scores being saved. I won't put a number on it. And yet when it comes to those that stuck with the Lord through thick and thin, you're looking at around 120 souls. Verse 11. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying the speech of Lyconia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. Typical superstitious, ignorant people. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius 
because he was the chief speaker. Paul, verse 12, is now the chief speaker. Up until this point of time in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, Barnabas has been very prevalent. He's been quoted several times. He was a Levite. He was a wealthy man. And yet Paul is now coming into his own. And they were shocked. They thought that God's plural had come down from heaven in the likeness of men. There's always been religious people around the world, ignorant people that thought that the gods would come down to earth in physical form. Even the pharaohs hoped that upon death they would enter or become divine. The Mormons hope that one day they will become a divine. They believe that they can become like Elohim and their goal is to procreate in heaven forever, much like the Islamists that commit jihad around the world. They are hoping that when they die, they will receive 70 black-haired virgins who will be permanently on tap for them for all of eternity. And yet, I often wonder what the women get who die in jihad. Do they get 70 male virgins? I somehow doubt it. It's a very warped religion, of course. But Paul and Barnabas have healed a man, which you could argue is James chapter 2, works in the sight of men. But I won't get into that too much it's been noted, it's been witnessed by those in Lyconia. Barnabas is called Jupiter, paganism of course, and Paul is called Mercurius, Mercury. Pagan planets, of course, Jupiter, Mercury, Pluto, Venus, so on and so forth. What does Solomon say? There's nothing new under the sun. Look at verse 13, please. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice with the people. They wanted to literally have a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And if you weren't a saved man or woman, reading this, or if you are not saved, reading this, or if you are interested in the word of God but are not yet saved, you might not think much of this. But this is bordering idolatry. You see, man was made to worship Almighty God. The word of God says, There are no other gods before me. I'll have no other gods before me. I'm the one true God. Worship thou me. And he goes on to say in verse 14, which when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do ye these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Turn from worshipping false vanities. That's a picture of repentance in a nutshell. We also, verse 15, are men of like passions with you. We're just like you. Don't worship me. Acts chapter 10, Peter tells Cornelius to get up off his knees. Revelation 19, John the Apostle is told to get up off his knees in reference to almost worshipping an angel. If you want to worship anybody, you worship Almighty God. We are also men of like passions with you. 14, they rent their clothes with absolute horror and ran in among the people. It's a picture of urgency. And they preach unto them that ye, all of you, should turn from these vanities, verse 15, unto the living God, the triune God, which made heaven and earth and the sea, no evolution, and all things that are therein. In other words, give God the glory, who in times past, Suffered all nations, he put up with all nations, to walk in their own ways. 
there's a picture of repentance. Turn from unbelief to belief. Forsake the worship of idolatry. Forsake vanities. And that goes back to the beginning of this message. How they came into Iconium. They both went together into the synagogue of the Jews. Preached to them that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed and were saved. And here the call goes out in verses 14 and 15 going to 16, and I will conclude today's broadcast in verse 16, to turn from these vanities unto the living God. That is repentance in a nutshell. There's no works involved. You don't turn more to your sins. You don't try and go back and fix up the wrongs that you have done. You haven't got time to do that. 150,000 people die every day. If you were lying in the gutter dying, you wouldn't have time to be baptized. You wouldn't have time to be confirmed. You wouldn't have time to go back and fix up things that need to be fixed up. In other words, you haven't got time to make amends. You come as you are, broken. You turn to the Savior in faith and you trust in his death, burial and resurrection. Okay, so you come to the Savior as you are broken and you turn to the Savior, Jesus Christ, and you believe on him and you trust in his death, burial and resurrection. And then you are saved and kept saved. And one last time in verse 16, who in times past suffered all nations, Gentiles of course, to walk in their own ways. And yet those people are going to be judged one day based on what they knew about the Lord. They have a conscience, you have a conscience. Before you got saved, your conscience told you what was right and what was wrong. And the Lord God will judge you for that when he comes to judging you. But there you are, 16 verses, a crash course so far. And this will probably be at least a two-parter. But hopefully you spotted that those in organized religion couldn't heal this poor man. And those that were superstitious, unsaved, also were stopped at the 11th hour from offering a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. And please note that Paul and Barnabas didn't just bypass them and say, you're all God's children. You can do your own thing. He loves you all. No, they were told to repent because God is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. So we need to evangelize unsaved people, and we need to do it each and every day. Otherwise, according to Ezekiel 3 and Ezekiel 33 and Acts 18 and Acts chapter 20, their blood will be on our hands if we don't do so. But there we are. I'll close there in verse 16. We'll pick it up next week in Acts 14 verse 17.